All right, well, we are in Mark 13, and uh, just by way of review, somebody remind me where in Scripture we can find the Olivet Discourse. I'll give you a hint. One of the places is Mark 13, but there are two other places in Scripture where we can find uh, the parallel passages that Jesus spoke in Mark 13. Do you guys recall where they are? I heard Matthew 24 and some ramblings over here. Uh, I said, I know it ain't in John. Yeah, not in John. Good. Yeah, in the three synoptics. And we got Matthew 24. Isn't that Luke 11? Uh, close. Kind of close, I guess. Luke 21. So there's a one in there. Um, yeah, I feel kind of weird saying 11 and 21 are close, but my mind works that way. So, yes, Luke 21, Matthew 24, and Mark 13 all cover the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' conversation with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. Uh, the longest discourse, like teaching that we have of Jesus, at least in Mark, um, talking about things to come just hours before he goes to the cross, hours before his death. And how is it that Jesus begins to answer the disciples' questions? We covered these earlier in Mark 13. Remember, the disciples asked these questions, uh, when will these things take place? Talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, the destruction of the temple. What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of the end of the age? Uh, how did Jesus respond to those questions, at least initially, in the first several verses of the chapter? Told them what isn't a sign. Yes, good. He gave them several non-signs. He said, you guys... You don't need to be worried. You don't need to fret because there are going to be lots of people who are going to come in my name, lots of Christ or Messiahs who are going to rise up and say that they are the Messiah. Don't follow after them. Don't be deceived. He said there's going to be many wars and rumors of wars. There are going to be uh, famines and earthquakes. These things aren't the end. They're just the beginning of birth pangs, right? And he let them know that they are going to face persecution. Persecution is a reality that they need to be aware of. But they don't need to be worried that the end has come when they see these other non-signs. Those are just going to be the beginning of birth pangs. And birth pangs come uh, in increasing frequency and increasing intensity as time progresses. And so we'll see more of those signs as his second coming draws closer. And then in 1310, last week we looked at this, about... It says in 1310 that the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And so when it says that, what is this word first in reference to? The gospel must first be preached to all nations. First before what? Yes, good. So he's harkening back to their questions that started off this whole discourse, right? First before the end, before he comes, his second coming to establish his kingdom, the messianic kingdom that the disciples were expecting even when Jesus was here the first time. They were looking for an earthly king to set up his reign to kick out the Romans. And he said, well, no, first the gospel needs to be preached to all nations. And how is this going to take place, this preaching of the gospel to all nations? By what means? What's that? Yes, good, an angel. We looked at that in Revelation 14, right? Not that we shouldn't be preaching the gospel. We have that commission as well, right? We are ambassadors who have been given this commission, this ministry of reconciliation to preach the gospel to the world. However, Revelation 14, 6 and 7 says, John speaking, he says, And I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, and he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. And so again, yes, we want to preach a gospel. However, we shouldn't expect that to be the, the ultimate end of God's program and uh, to usher in his second coming. For a long time when I was growing up, I had this uh, perception that Jesus was kind of waiting on us a little bit, that he's called us to do the work of an evangelist and we need to go out and we need to do this work and just wondering if maybe he hasn't come back yet because I haven't been 
uh, responsible in my job as an evangelist. I haven't gone out and I haven't shared my faith with, you know, the, the last person who needs to hear. And maybe when I'm sharing with somebody and they embrace the gospel, then at that moment, that'll be the, the last person who needs to enter the kingdom and Jesus will come back. I think I was misunderstood in that, that understanding because, again, this angel in Revelation 14, he's going to be the one who's going to come back and preach the gospel that will ultimately bring uh, the, the second coming of Christ. Any thoughts or questions on things we've studied in the last couple weeks getting to this point in Mark 13? All right, these are difficult things, but we'll work through them together. Yes, Jerry. Well, that song we were singing this morning just points out how remarkable it is that even with an angel flying through heaven, obviously supernatural proclamation of the good news, men will still refuse to bow to that instead. Mm-hmm. Isn't that incredible? Rocks and mountains will fall even during the, the millennial reign, when Jesus is here reigning on earth, there will be people who will refuse him and they will reject him. Because as you mentioned, there's a, a spiritual war at play, right? And people are dead in our trespasses and sin. That's where we are naturally, right? We are by nature enemies of God. We are children of wrath, even as the rest. And unless God does a supernatural uh, work in our hearts and, and takes our hearts and changes them from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, we won't be uh, drawn to this, this worship of him. We'll still continue to reject him. And that's crazy. Yeah, even with the angels flying around and with Jesus reigning on his throne, people will reject. All right, well, let's go ahead and read our, our passage for this morning. Again, we're in Mark 13. And could I get somebody to read for us verses 14 to 23? Who can grab those 10 verses for us? Mark 13, 14 to 23. I can get it. All right, thanks, Amy. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter, for in those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord has not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. All right. Thank you. All right. So starting off that passage, this is where we're going to spend the, the bulk of our time this morning, is talking about this phrase at the beginning, this abomination of desolation. And hopefully that phrase is somewhat familiar to you. Uh, does anybody know where we first see that phrase in Scripture, where it first pops up? Yes. The book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. Attaboy. Well, let's go ahead and turn to the book of Daniel. Let's turn to Daniel 9, and we'll read these verses. We'll spend, again, quite a bit of time here in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. And those other two references on there, um, those are other references in Daniel, or other verses in Daniel, where we can see this reference to the abomination of desolation. But I'll go ahead and start in Daniel 9. Again, this is the first time that we see this interesting phrase, abomination of desolation. So Daniel 9, starting in verse 24, it says... Seventy weeks have I decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So for now, we're going to skip over the, the details of this 70 weeks. We'll certainly get into the 70 weeks and what that means, what it's talking about. But for the moment... 
um, who is this, this section being addressed to? Who does this verse um, speak of this decree for? Good. Yeah, it says that right there in the, the text, right? Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. So, yes, the nation of Israel and the holy city being uh, Jerusalem, right? So these 70 weeks are concerning the Jewish people and Jerusalem. That's important. We need to keep that in mind, right? And then these 70 weeks are decreed for a certain purpose, to do a certain thing. And we see that throughout the rest of verse 24, and so we can break 24 down into two different groups because uh, Daniel mentions, uh, well, here is mentioned in Daniel, six different things, six different aspects of the purpose for these 70 weeks. And so this verse speaks of three accomplishments of Jesus, which are going to take place at his first coming, and then three accomplishments at his second coming. And so let's walk through those together. Uh, in verse 24, again, 70 weeks have been decreed. This is for the Jewish people and the holy city. And here's the first one that takes place at his first coming, to finish transgression. Remember that when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished, right? It is paid in full to tell us that it's, it's done. The transgression is finished, it's paid for. Secondly, it says to make an end of sin. Uh, Colossians 2.14 says that all of our uh, debts and decrees that have been cast against us, they've been taken, they've been nailed to the cross. Again, they're, they're paid in full, right? And then thirdly, in verse 24, is to make atonement for iniquity. Uh, this is speaking of Christ's propitiation, his satisfactory payment, that he is good enough to make that payment. Not just anybody can die to pay for sin, right? But Jesus, he came to make atonement for this iniquity. Now, again, those three things took place at his first coming. We can look back and we can see, okay, well, that was accomplished at the cross. The second three things that we see in this passage are going to be fulfilled at his second coming. And we see that starting with uh, to bring in everlasting righteousness. We know that hasn't taken place yet, right? Our world isn't an everlasting righteous world, right? You just turn on the news and we can see we're not there. But that's going to happen. And this 70 weeks have been decreed in order to do that. Also, to seal up visions and prophecies. So to, to wrap up everything with a nice little pretty bow, to finish everything that was ever prophesied by God that he said would take place. That's going to take place in accordance with these 70 weeks that have been decreed. And then lastly, to anoint the most holy place. And that's in reference to the future temple that is going to be established. Again, we're in Daniel 9, 24. We'll be there for a little while as we walk through this section that's dealing with these six aspects that are going to be accomplished through these 70 weeks, again, concerning Jerusalem and the Jewish people. So um, God is now at this point going to break down these 70 weeks. He's going to give Daniel a, a timeline of sorts about how he intends to unfold his future plans for Israel. And Daniel has been called the, the backbone of prophecy. So that's why we're going back to Daniel. We have to get an understanding of these 70 weeks to better understand the abomination of desolation that Jesus is talking about in Mark 13. I know we're kind of taking a detour and uh, hopefully you can see a little bit of where we're going. Do you have any Thoughts or questions before we jump into this timeline that's going to be given for Daniel. All right. Well, that's what we're getting into. Let's take a look at this timeline. And here I've drawn up on our screen a, a little timeline of sorts. And let's go ahead and start in verse 25. It says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So, let's start there. Let's take it piece by piece. Um, first, we need to know that when the text here is speaking of a week, it's speaking of seven years, which seems a little bit different, right? Uh, you hear a week, and normally you think 
seven days, but it's literally just sevens. So he's speaking of groups of sevens, and we know from, from history, from the context, this can't be referring to seven days, but it's referring rather to groups of seven years. So one week equals seven years. That's important to keep in mind. It says that uh, you, Daniel, are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So that's what starts this timeline. Um, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks. And so if we calculate that out, these seven weeks, we end up with 49 years. Because remember, a week is seven years, so you multiply seven by seven, you get 49. And it, again, begins with this command to rebuild Jerusalem. And that happened. You can go and read about that in Nehemiah. Um, and Ezra and Esther Those all speak to this prophetic event about restoring this Jerusalem, which during Daniel's time was barren. Remember, they were, were captive in uh, Babylon at this point. And so he gives them, he gives Daniel this number, seven weeks or 49 years. But he gives him another number in that same verse. So seven weeks and 62 weeks. And so we have this next bigger section because 62 weeks, that ends up being 434 years, which is quite a bit longer than the 49 years, right? And it says, until Messiah the Prince, and that's speaking about Jesus, right? There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So that's our starting point and our ending point. The decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem starts the, the timeline, so to speak, the clock. And then the Messiah the Prince is um, what's going to end it. It says that it, speaking of the temple, will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. And then going into verse 26, it says, then after 62 weeks, so this is what's going to close off the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is, oh, we'll get into there in a minute. So he'll be cut off and have nothing. Um, if you guys remember the great passage back in Isaiah 53, talking about uh, the, the prophecy of his coming death, right? That he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. Shortly after that, in Isaiah 53.8, it says that by oppression and judgment, he has taken away, he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. So that speaks of a future fulfillment, another prophecy of Messiah the Prince being cut off being crucified, right? And again, we see in that same passage that it is for the transgression of my people. That's why he was cut off. That's why he was crucified. And um, so if we take and, and add those together, seven weeks and 62 weeks, what do we end up with? What is the sum of seven and 62? 69. 69. Good. So we have between those two, 69 weeks, or 483 years, right? Um, and, and those two are put together in these verses, verse 25 and 26, uh, starting with command to rebuild Jerusalem, ending with the, the cutting off of the Messiah. Well, let's keep going here in verse 26. It says that the people of the prince who is to come... Now, let's not get that confused with Messiah the Prince. This is a different character here, the Prince who is to come. The people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war and desolation, and desolations are determined. And so, again, we don't want to confuse the, the Prince who is to come um, with the Messiah. Rather, it's a reference to the Antichrist who is to come. And his people is a reference to the, the Roman people. And we've already looked at that a little bit and talked about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And so here, this is pretty crazy. This is a reference to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And it comes some 540, 550 years before through Daniel, a, a prophecy that this is going to take place, this is going to happen even prior to the rebuilding of the temple. The decree hasn't gone out to rebuild the temple yet. 
and we're already getting this prophecy of the destruction of the city and the sanctuary, which is pretty cool. And then at the end of 26, it says, even to the end, there will be war, right? Just like Jesus said, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. Don't worry, this isn't the end. There will be desolations that are determined. Again, um, this is not the end. These are these non-signs, just the beginning of these birth pains. And so up until this point in Daniel, we have 69 weeks that have been talked about. But remember back in verse 24, it was mentioned that there would be 70 weeks that were decreed for your people. And so we still have one week left to go. So let's pick up again in verse 27. It says, and he, speaking to the prince who is to come about the Antichrist, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. So um, for the 70th week, we see that this prince who is to come will make uh, and confirm a seven-year covenant. Again, this one week equals seven years, and this is going to wrap up the full 70 weeks. I hope you're kind of hanging with me. We're going through a lot real quick just to uh, cover these 70 weeks of Daniel. This is, again, the, the backbone of prophecy. Um, does anybody know what another term is for this last week, the 70th week of Daniel? Tribulation. Yes, tribulation. This is speaking of the tribulation that is to come. And we'll get into that a little bit more in the Olivet Discourse. And uh, John just really covers that in great detail in the book of Revelation. But we should understand the 70th week of Daniel as the tribulation. And then, again, back in verse 27, he says, But in the middle of this week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. What would be the middle of a seven-year period? It'd be three and a half years, right? So we can break that section of the tribulation up into two, three and a half year periods. It says in the middle, he's going to put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings, which have to take place in a temple. So again, we have reference here to a future temple. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. That's our, our phrase that we went all the way back to Daniel to look for, right? The abomination of desolation. Um, on the wings of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So uh, this prince who is to come, this Antichrist, is going to come, and he is going to uh, initiate this abomination of desolation. But even prior to that, um, what takes place prior to the, the tribulation? What do we believe happens even before these seven years of, of hell that are going to be unleashed on earth? The rapture, right? The church isn't going to be here for that. Uh, this is the time of Jacob's trouble. So we have the rapture taking place prior to the tribulation. And what's going to take place after the tribulation? Yeah, the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, right? <clears throat> so the tribulation is all leading up to Jesus coming back and establishing his kingdom here on earth where he's going to reign for a literal thousand years. <clears throat> so we're starting to build out our timeline here a little bit, seeing Daniel's 70 weeks, the 69 that are historical, right? And the 70th, which is uh, the tribulation, which we believe is yet to come. And yet we still have this little gap in here, right? What is that gap in reference to? Any idea? Yeah, the, the Gentiles. Yes, the age of the Gentiles, the church age. Because remember, the 69th week ended with the Messiah being cut off. And the tribulation, that's not yet happened. And so we have this big gap of time in between, um, which is the age of the Gentiles or the time of the Gentiles. <clears throat> And Ephesians 3 talks about this. We're not going to go there, but it talks about how this gap, this church age gap, the time of the Gentiles was a mystery in the Old Testament. So as Daniel was getting this and as people were reading Daniel for hundreds of years, it's likely that they thought that it was all together, right? Just 70 sequential years or weeks. So 
490 years altogether. But uh, again, Ephesians 3 says, no, this was a, a mystery. There's a, a gap in between that uh, was not explained in the past, but this is God's program. This is the way that he's uh, working things out. And Luke 21, 24, what should stick out to us? What should pop out to us about that reference? It's not Luke eleven twenty four. It's Luke twenty one twenty four, right? Yeah. So that's one of the the parallel passages of the Olivet Discourse, and we'll look at that verse here in a moment. Um, but that is uh, another reference again to the time of the Gentiles. All right. Let's see. So the abomination of desolation should be understood as a blasphemous use of God's temple. That's what the abomination of desolation is, where this man is going to come in, he's going to desolate or destroy uh, the temple. The abomination abomination speaks of something that is vile, something that is ungodly, a, a perversion of God's design, right? Uh, back in Leviticus 18, God used this word to speak of homosexuality and bestiality and all these things. He said, that's an abomination to the Lord, right? That's something that is vile that's, um, that he sees as a perversion. And desolation is just uh, referring to a, an emptying or destroying um, of, of God's purpose, of God's meaning. Let's look up this passage in 2 Thessalonians. This will help kind of fill out our, our timeline a little bit. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll go ahead and start in verse 3. Um, it says, let no, one, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. So uh, people were saying that Jesus had already come at this point. And Paul was saying, no, Jesus hasn't come. Don't be deceived because the apostasy hasn't taken place yet. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Those references are references to the same man we looked at back in Daniel 7, the prince who is to come, or the Antichrist. He's called here the man of lawlessness, or the son of destruction. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That is what he's going to do. He's going to set himself up in the temple, and he's going to say that he is God. He's going to, in, in some way, uh, make himself equal with God, demand some kind of worship. He's going to bring about this abomination of desolation. He's going to uh, just pervert the temple. Verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what remains, what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. That's a reference to the rapture, because the Holy Spirit is the one who restrains sin, right? And the Holy Spirit is going to be taken out of the way at the rapture. The Holy Spirit who indwells the church. The church is going to be raptured, taken up out of here because it's a time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, that's referring to the, the rapture. Um, did I finish all the way? Oh, verse 8. Then, after that point, after the rapture, after the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, the restrainer, then the lawless one will be revealed from heaven whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So right there, just in those few verses, we get, again, a kind of timeline of what's going to happen, right? The Antichrist is going to um, set himself up in the temple, but it's not going to take place until the, the rapture, until the restrainer has been taken out of the way. And then at the end, the Lord will slay him with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end um, by the appearance of his coming. So that's speaking to the second coming. So we have all in there, uh, again, a reference to the timeline. Let me go back to that timeline real quick and throw it up there for us. Um, oh, I went back one too many. That's, again, that's a lot there. Is that all? 
kind of somewhat making sense. Do you have any thoughts or questions on that timeline? There's a lot going on there, but I want to kind of focus in on the abomination of desolation, but we really need that bigger picture to help us understand what that is. Yes? It's just the space of the time of the Gentiles is out of proportion. It is wildly out of proportion, <laughs> right? I, I couldn't fit, uh, I couldn't make it proportionate. But yeah, that, that little tiny sliver of space, that is some 2,000 years, right? And the others are, you can see on there, far less than 2,000 years. So it is not to scale. You're right. I, for the first time, it's kind of clicking to me that that's all about, like I've known it's all about Israel, but I'm like, why is there such a space? Why is there, you know, mm -hmm. the time of the Gentiles, I've never really clicked in that it's not the time of the of Israel. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and that's really important to notice right off the bat there in Daniel 9:24 that it's in reference to uh, to his people and to the holy city. So it's talking about Jerusalem and um, the the Jewish people. And yeah, we're just a, a parenthesis in time, right? The church age. Not that God is done with Israel. God is definitely he has a future for Israel and a plan for Israel. They will be grafted back in Romans chapter 11. But um, it's, it's a parenthesis. And then, yeah, the tribulation, again, that's a time of Jacob's trouble, a time of Jacob's distress. That is focusing on um, these, fulfilling these 70 weeks. 70 weeks is all about Israel. Absolutely. Yep. And that's why we're not there. All right. Good. Well, let me get back to where we are. And, um, you know, even in the Old Testament, even prior to Jesus coming, people were reading Daniel and they were looking for these signs. They were looking for, okay, well, who is this prince who is to come uh, to borrow, quote, unquote, future terminology, this man of lawlessness, right? Um, They're trying to figure out who this is. And we have a, a pretty good candidate in Old Testament times back in 167, prior to the New Testament, rather, uh, in Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, he named himself Epiphanes. That's like a, a self-named title. It means God manifest. God here on earth. Kind of like, um, what is it in Isaiah? Um, God who is to come. Blasphemy. Yes, <laughs> kind of like blasphemy. Uh, good job. Um, I don't know what I was thinking. Oh, yeah, he gave himself that name, Antiochus Epiphanes. And the people would call him Antiochus Epimenes, which means crazy man or madman, just to kind of play on that name, because he truly was a, a crazy madman. He was a, a Greek king, and he had a, a absolute hatred for the Jewish people, and he wanted to brutally murder the Jewish people. He went in and, and raided the Jewish temple. He sacrificed a pig on an altar that he erected to Zeus, to the god Zeus. He erected this altar over the, the altar of burnt offering, took a pig, which is an unclean animal to the Jewish people, right? And sacrificed it to Zeus. So he went in and completely uh, destroyed the temple, right? This abomination of desolation. Um, in addition to this, he, oh, there we go. He sacrificed a pig on the altar to Zeus. He also killed many Jews and he forced them to offer sacrifices to Zeus and to other false gods and then to, to eat meat, this, again, unclean food that they were not permitted to eat. So he came in and uh, just completely destroyed everything that the, the temple stood for and everything that the Jews believed in. And uh, people were looking at this saying, well, that's definitely an abomination of desolation, right? We're going to say something, Jerry? No. Okay. Uh, so he was, without a doubt, an insane, wicked man uh, whose actions were certainly an abomination in his destruction and his desolation of the temple. And at the time, it seemed that his actions were the, the complete fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy that he had uh, fulfilled this abomination of desolation. But turning back to Mark 13, how do we know that this wasn't the case, that he hadn't uh, completely fulfilled this abomination of desolation. 
Yeah, yeah, so the timeline didn't match up, right, with the three and a half years and uh, Messiah coming after that. The timeline was for sure off. Um, but we see in Mark 13, 14, which was far after 167 BC, right? Remember, Mark was written 50 to 60 AD. Uh, Jesus is talking about this as still future. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation. So he's coming saying, yeah, Antiochus Epiphanes, that was not a good thing, right? Um, I think that was definitely a foreshadowing of the abomination of desolation, but it wasn't the, the absolute fulfillment of it because Jesus is still speaking of it as yet future. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. So go back and, and understand all these things that we just spent a lot of back time studying in Daniel 9. Um, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So Jesus kind of has an expectation that they have this understanding of this backdrop in Daniel, right? This abomination of desolation. And he's speaking of it as yet future, as something that is still yet to come. <clears throat> and so uh, last week, when we were looking at verses 9 through 13, I kind of concluded that um, this was addressing not just the first century Christians, right? And not just the, the last generation that's going to go through the, the tribulation, but it's really including both of those generations and even several in between. It's not either or, but it's both and, that Jesus was speaking in an amazing way that included both groups within his discourse. And I think that something similar is going on here, that he's looking at both events, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, as well as the, the tribulation period in general that is yet to come. And this is the, the position that futurists take. We've talked a little bit about futurists and, and preterists and partial preterists. And so futurists will hold that um, these verses are largely unfulfilled prophecy, verses 14 through 23 whereas the preterists and the partial preterists think that it was all fulfilled back in 70 AD. And so just to kind of tie that back in and show you who's standing where, uh, we think these things are still yet to come. And um, so the, the abomination of desolation, right, in verse 14, kind of sparks the, the whole tribulation. Oh, I went too far. It gets things rolling. It says, when you see this abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, then, and, and all these things kind of unfold, right? That's the, the, the starting point that gets the ball rolling. And uh, how might we sum up the advice that Jesus gives in, in these following verses, what people are to do when they see the abomination of, de of desolation? Flee. Yeah, they're to flee, right? Huh? Run for your lives. Run for your lives. Get out of Dodge, right? Things are going to be bad. Yeah, to the mountains. <clears throat> yeah, isn't that crazy that the the outlook for Jerusalem is so bad that they have to go to the mountains. They they can't even stick around. The only hope for Jerusalem is to go to the mountains. Um, and we see the same thing I mentioned earlier, Luke twenty one twenty four. Let me read that for you real quick. It says in Luke 21, 24. Well, before we go there, let's, let's actually read what we just summed up by saying you need to flee, right? You need to run to the mountains. Uh, it says, when the abomination of desolation comes, you see him standing where he should not be in the temple, right? Then those who are in Ju Judah, Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down, nor go in to get anything out of his house. The one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant in those days, who are nursing babies in those days, who are, you know, burdened down with this extra weight, extra burden. Uh, pray that it may not happen in winter. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to be a, a terrible time and you need to get out of town. Uh, Luke, in his account, Luke 21, 23, and 24, he says... Similarly, woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing, nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress on the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be taken away as captives among all nations, 
and Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's where we get that term for this period of the, the church age, the time of the Gentiles. And so I don't want to in any way suggest that Jesus didn't have 70 AD in view at all when he was giving this advice. Uh, it's been suggested that Christians who were familiar with this warning heeded this advice during Rome's invasion, and they saved themselves by, uh, by fleeing to the mountains, right? By listening to this advice. I just think that Jesus had more than 70 AD in view. Uh, again, it's, it's a, a both and. That 70 AD, just like uh, 167 AD with Antiochus Epiphanes, is a foreshadowing of an even greater event to come, the great tribulation that is still yet future. Let me read for you this quote from uh, Josephus, a first century Jewish historian. He said, and now since his, this is referring back to Rome coming in and, and destroying Jerusalem in 78. So he says, and now since Titus's soldiers were already quite tired of killing men. Can you imagine that? They were just killing people, slaughtering people left and right, so much so that they were tired of it. And yet, there appeared to be a vast multitude still remaining alive. Caesar gave orders that they should kill none but those that were in arms and opposed them, but should take the rest alive. But together with those whom they had orders to slay, they slew the aged and the infirm. And for those that were in their flourishing age and who might be useful to them, they drove them together into the temple and shut them up within the walls of the court of the women. Those that were under 17 were sold as slaves. 11,000 were starved to death. 97,000 were carried captive, and the number of those that perished was 1,100,000. So, the destruction of Jerusalem was no small matter. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD, that was a big event for sure. Uh, and again, I think Jesus prophesied it even before it came about, and he was warning people about it. However, I don't think that's the end of it. This was definitely a, a terrible situation. Uh, another um, prophecy, but not the end. Yes, Gail? I wanted to ask you, is uh, the story about the uh, great king, is that in Josephus too? Or is that okay? The story about what great king? The great king. The great oh, Antiochus Epiphanes? Yes. Yeah, he mentioned that. That's what I was wondering. It was in Josephus. Yeah. Yeah, and also in Maccabees, in the Apocrypha, yeah, First Maccabees. Yeah, that's um, during the intertestamental period, the 400 years of silence. That's where. Kind of place where that was. Yeah, yeah, First Maccabees, uh, chapter one, and then again it's mentioned in chapter six. Okay, thank you. Yeah, Jerry. So, since. All that horror happened, including the Antiochus' um, event 130 years, 150 more years before this. Without John's revelation in 95, you'd really be confused about that. Yeah. detail, the clarity to it, so yeah, all of these other references from before, would easily let you go be confused after Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah, especially come 73 and a half, right, or 77 AD, you'd be, if you had these texts and you had access to them, you'd be wondering, okay, well, what, what's going on, and uh, when's the, the next thing going to happen, where is this man of lawlessness, and, and was it Titus, or... Yeah, there'd be a lot more confusion, and, and there's still a lot of confusion, but yeah, thankfully we have the book of Revelation to add even more insight and understanding. Anything else? All right. Well, um, yeah, looking at 70 AD and, and everything that Titus did, that was certainly a, a calamity, right? Um, however, I don't think that 
fulfills all the details that are mentioned in our passage, which does come even before 70 AD. Um, what are some problems with understanding that in relation to what Jesus has given us in, in Mark 13? How does the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD fail to fulfill some of the details that are mentioned in our passage? And even going back to Daniel 9. Also, the, the, the Antichrist, not just a Antichrist-like figure, but we're, we're missing the whole, the whole guy there. Yes. Yeah, so the abomination of desolation and, and the connections there are really weak, right? We don't see that. With Antiochus Epiphany, I can see why people say, okay, well, maybe that's him, because he did go into the temple. He did you know, offer this sacrifice and force the Jews to eat this pig and whatever, but not so much in 70 AD. Um, Barry Cooper tries to make some connections, and he says that Titus's armies were an abomination because they carried with them idolatrous images of their emperor, and they brought desolation because they destroyed the city of Jerusalem and its temple. But I think that's a stretch, right? That's not the kind of detail we're given in Daniel 9 or in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, where he's going to go in and enter the temple and raise himself up and declare himself to be God. Uh, that didn't take place in 70 AD, at least so far as we're told. Well, yes, no? Certainly, if you stick to Daniel, there should only have been seven years after 70. So by 77, yep. Jesus should have come back again. Yeah, yeah, and that would be like, okay, well, it's now 78, 79 AD. Mm, something's up, right? All right, and then uh, verse 19, it doesn't match up with verse 19 either, right? Mark 13, 19 says, for those days will be a time of tribulation. That's a big key word, right? That's the word that we equated with Daniel's 70th week. In those days, it will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. So he says right there, the words of Jesus, clear as day. This is going to be unprecedented. Nothing before that's ever happened like it. Nothing that will happen after that that's ever like it. Um, can you think of anything that's worse? Any worse tribulations than what we just read about in 70 AD, the destruction of Rome? Even if we just relegate it to the Jewish people, anything worse than the destruction of 1.1 million Jews? Yes. Yeah, those were pretty bad, right? Brutal, you might even say. <laughs> yes. And then even in more recent history, with the Holocaust, right? And the destruction of 6 million Jews plus Jews. Um, that's, I would say, worse than what took place in 70 AD. Not to downplay that. That was a tragedy. But the Holocaust, I would think, would be even more tragic. And then even going back before the... Babylonian and Assyrian captivities, which again were tragic and, and brutal. Uh, the destruction of the whole world, right? The flood, that's a pretty big deal. Um, and yet we're told that what Jesus is talking about here, this tribulation is going to be worse than even that. Um, that's pretty hard to do, right? Uh, well, let's look at, oh, here, we'll see. In Revelation 6, verse 8. God talks about one quarter of the population dying. And then just a couple chapters later in chapter 9, verse 15, he talks about half of, or one third rather, of the population being killed. So let me read those verses for us. It says in Revelation 6, 8, I looked and behold an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now again, the, the preterists and partial preterists will say, oh, well, that's already happened. That's allegorical. I don't think so. I think that that hasn't happened, that this quarter of the population hasn't been killed with sword and famine and pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. I think that's talking about the future tribulation, right? And then after that, in 9.15, it says that the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. So if we just take our world population today, right? Some 
8 billion people and cut it down by uh, a quarter, we're down to 6 billion people, right? That's terrible. And then we add into that uh, this other one-third from 9.15, Revelation 9.15, and then we're down to 4 billion people. And those aren't the only two times where God sends these, these plagues, right? These seven trumpets and bowls and um, this wrath that he's pouring out during this time of Jacob's trouble. And so just with those two verses, we're down to half of the world's population. Four billion people just, right? Um, that's some 4,000 times worse than the destruction that took place in 70 AD. Again, not to downplay that, but 1 million, 1.1 million people being killed versus 4 billion people being killed. Uh, those are two different degrees of tribulation, aren't they? Any other thoughts on that? And this is all within a seven-year period. Yes, and the vast majority of it, even within a three-and-a-half-year period, within the Great Tribulation, because, remember, it says in Mark 13, 14, when you see the abomination of desolation uh, standing there, that's really what's going to click off the, the second half of the Tribulation. That's where we see the Great Tribulation. That's where things really get bad. All right, well, let's look at how bad it's going to be. Well, we're just about done here. Mark 13, verse 20 says, Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So that's just, again, a, a testament to how bad this tribulation is. And uh, there's disagreement on what that means to shorten the days. Some people think, okay, well, instead of being, you know, seven years or 10 or 15 years, he shortened it to three and a half years. But it's very likely it's talking about like literally shortening the days because remember, we're going to have all these uh, astronomical signs in the heavens. And so uh, it talked about a third of the sun being darkened and, and so forth. So I think that the literal days, the length of days will be decreased. So there's going to be less time for people to go out and to kill and to slaughter. So those days will be literally shorter and Therefore, there are going to be survivors, right? <clears throat> and then Jesus once again uh, reiterates his warning not to accept false Christ, but to take heed and to be on guard. He says in verse 21, And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, here he is, or he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. And so Jesus did just like he did back in verses 5 and 6 of the same chapter. He again warns of the coming false Christ who will be so convincing in their signs and miraculous wonders that they're performing that they're going to turn many away. Remember, this is going to be a, a terrible time of pain and suffering. People are going to be looking for hope. People are going to be looking for a Savior, for a Messiah, for some kind of hope of redemption. And they're going to be easily led astray. And so that's why Jesus says, no, don't be led astray. Remember, I told you ahead of time so that you won't be surprised. And though it's not convincing enough to sway the elect. Remember, we looked a couple of weeks ago about how true believers um, will endure until the end. Back in verse 13, that those who are in Christ uh, will endure until the end. We, if we're in him, then we will remain in him. And those who went out from us, they did so because they were not of us. Let me close with this last quote from John Grasmick. He says, and I, I agree with this perspective wholeheartedly. He says, the events of 167 where Antiochus Epiphanes set himself up in the temple, and the events of 70 AD where Rome came in and uh, destroyed the temple. They foreshadow a final fulfillment of Jesus' words just, of, yeah, Jesus' words just prior to his second advent. The unprecedented distress, which is described in Mark 13, was true of, but not restricted to, the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus looked beyond A.D. 70 to the final great tribulation prior to the second advent. 
So again, I think Jesus did have 70 AD in view, but he was using that to verify this even greater, more grandiose uh, prophecy of this great tribulation that was yet to come. Any thoughts or questions on any of that? That's a lot. I'll throw that up there to maybe spark some other thoughts you might have because yeah, we covered Daniel and Mark and several different periods of time in history. I know that's a lot. Jerry? Well, it certainly does take a lot of faith in God's word to believe all of those explicit descriptions throughout through Revelation considering far and above anything the earth has ever seen yet. Yeah. I believe that is because you know, one of the things that it includes is talking about the, after Jesus comes back, he'll be spending seven years burning the destruction, the machines of war that occurred during all of that time. But if the earth you know, people make fun of that because now we're all using steel and titanium and all kinds of yeah. things. But when just the first couple of events happen, you know, most of our infrastructure is going to be destroyed and not a whole lot is going to be happening. All of our solar collection, our water energies, you look at all the events, the earthquakes and stuff falling out of the skies, we're going to be back to very basic. They will be back to very basic living at that time. Yeah, yeah and we've grown very dependent upon <coughs> all of our stuff and, and everybody else feeding us and providing for us, right? Especially these shortening the days of life. My goodness, yep. so much man isn't prepared. I think you you would do okay, but the rest of us we would be in trouble. <laughs> That's because I'm pretty comfortable in home in there. Yeah, good point. It's incomprehensible. It takes a lot of confidence that God really means what He says, because He says some really crazy stuff. But then yeah. you look at what Jesus did while He was here. And that's why I think he connected it with 70 AD because it, the things he said were so outlandish. He said, no, look at 70 AD and that will give uh, credence to what I'm going to say about the end. Good. Anything else? Joseph. So I've never heard of that interpretation that the other day is to be shortened is the actual like, daytime. Mm -hmm. is, is there an actual like, name for a group or anything that believes that interpretation or no, no name. It's just, I think it's a legitimate interpretation. Um, so, Christians, I mean, just a, yeah. a subgroup of Christians. And, futurists. Yeah, futurists. Yep. All right, yeah. Where do you get the a week is seven years? Uh, it means sevens, literally. Um, and if Again, if you calculate out like seven weeks or seven months, it, it doesn't match up. But you can go back to Nehemiah. You can start that time clock from Nehemiah and add up 69 weeks, and that brings you right up until you know, the, the time of Christ. Some people will uh, trace it down to the day that he entered into Jerusalem uh, on Palm Sunday or Palm Monday, depending on your position on that. And... Um, then, yeah, the, the tribulation also, if you compare that with Daniel, Daniel is very specific with the number of days, 12,060 days, and then he talks about 12,090 days, adding 30 days to that, 42, 42 and a half months, is that right? No, 42 months. Uh, you see that number in Revelation, which equals three and a half years. So adding all those things together. Um, so it's just the evidence, there's some evidence of the timeline. Yes. Well, but it means sevens. But yeah, it's not seven. What is really the question? It just says seven. It doesn't say week. Well, I was just wondering yeah. why it's not a direct seven weeks. Because the 
there's timeline evidence that it's seven years. Yeah, yes, it doesn't say weeks, it says sevens, but we've kind of taken that and translated it into weeks because that's what we understand seven days to be is one week. And so it's seven, um, and yeah, it's just understanding seven what, and seven years is the only thing that really fits. Yes. It gives the option of it. It could, be a, it could be a week of seven days, or it could be a year of seven years. Yep. It, it's either or, depending on the context. Good. You should get together with Hayden and show him how to use an accordance. Accordance. All right, let's pray. God, thank you that uh, these things that we looked at today aren't for the church, that you will deliver us. God, thank you again for the cross. Uh, help us to, to love you more and more each day. Uh, pray that you would be with us as we fellowship and worship together. Amen.